Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. Hello, I'm here today with Janet Fox, author of Books for Young Readers. Janet, how are you and where are you? I am fine. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm in Montana. Whereabouts in Montana? I know it a little. So we live, we have a house in Bozeman, which is in the, right on the, in the Rocky Mountains. And, but we also have been lucky enough to have a cabin in the mountains. And that's where I am at the moment where we've been sequestering most of the summer, most of the, (laughs) most of the COVID. (laughs) Yes. I hear you. I know Bozeman, my younger brother got married there. He went to, yeah, he has an MFA from the University of Montana at Missoula. Anyway, Janet has a new book coming out, which I guess is the second in a sort of series because you had the other one before and it's a, a YA historical fantasy. Not YA, sorry, middle grade historical fantasy. And I'm so excited to ask you questions about it because, of course, I have a lot. <laughs> First of all, can you talk to us about how you would characterize middle grade fiction? What does that mean to you in terms of your approach? So middle grade are, is anywhere from ages eight up to 14. It's that span of the age group where they're not quite ready for young adult, which can be very sophisticated with complicated topics and, and much more about the, the young adult who is separating from the family, moving out on their own, becoming an independent individual and generally is focused on that kiddo as someone who's moving into adulthood. And the younger books, chapter books and younger picture books, which are stories, but they are not terribly complex and they're very focused on the situations that very young children find themselves in or can relate to easily. The middle grade reader, I I love writing for middle graders because it's that sort of complicated. They're neither this nor they're that. They're a mythic creature in my head of kids who are still able to fantasize and live in that childhood realm, but also have very, they're leaning into young adulthood. And so most of the stories in the middle grade realm are focused on issues of separation, not separation, finding family, losing family, finding family, needing to create friend groups that form a sort of an exterior shell as a sort of secondary family. And so those are the kids that I love writing for. They're the, when I was a kid, my favorite set of books was, were the Narnia books. And those are the books that I feel like I'm aspire to write today. Yeah. So that's a great definition and it, it's really helpful because I write YA and adult. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, and really in terms of style for me, there's very little difference between YA and adult. I use the same kind of vocabulary. I expect the same sort of things from my readers. The only difference is the age of the protagonist and what matters to that protagonist. So 
I I read your book is just so awesome. I really love it. And but there are a few things that surprised me a lot about it. One is first of all, it's really scary. <laughs> so I, can you talk a little bit about that? About how that might play with young readers? Young readers seem to love scary. <laughs> and if you think this is scary, the, the, the first book in this series, The Charm Children of Rookskill Castle, I think is even scarier. <laughs> it's because it's got a more realistic element to it. So it could, it feels a little more like it could happen. And, and kids seem to really resonate with it. They love it. They love it. I think kids, the reason that scary books work for young readers, especially the middle grade readers, is it gives them, it's a book, and it gives them a safe space to play out fear, to play out the what ifs, to face something that they might fear and come away with not only a feeling of accomplishment, but also possibly with modeling of what the characters in the book do giving them a, a way to see how they can solve scary problems in their own lives. And Lord knows we're, we're rich with scary problems in our lives right oh, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, indeed. Let me th- I have so many things I wanted to ask you. The next one is what surprised me a bit. I love, it moves really fast. And interestingly, you're writing in the third person. Is there a reason why you chose third person for this fantasy, historical fantasy? That's a great question, because I do have three young adult novels, and they're all written in the first person. And I think that young adults relate more easily to first person. Young adults are inside their own heads a lot anyway, (laughs) the way I remember it. (laughs) They're very centered on themselves, and so first person seems a natural voice to use for young adults, whereas middle graders are not quite there yet. And I've read and certainly know middle grade books that are written in first person and it's, and it works extremely well in certain cases. But I wanted to put this in third person in part because there are multiple points of view in this book. And I wanted to be able to play with those multiple points of view. Yes, especially the monster's points of view. <laughs> I love those things. And here's, a, do you expect most of your readers who read this book to have read the first one? I had, and it, I'm just curious. No, and in fact, when my uh, editor asked for this second book, we discussed the fact that she wanted it to be what they're calling a companion novel as opposed to a sequel. She did not want me to focus on the same main character and a continuation of the first story. She wanted something entirely different. So it is quite different. It's in the same setting through most of the book. And the main character from the previous book is in the story. Cat is the main character in book one, but it's told obviously from now Isaac, Uh, Wolf's point of view, which is very different. So it's a boy as opposed to a girl for one thing. And for another, he has an entirely different set of experiences. So that was the publisher's desire. And that was fine with that because I I wanted to play with these other issues anyway. So do you think, do you think you would ever go back and pick up 
and use Cat again as a hero in another, in a subsequent book? Or are you going to continue so, in this vein? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I actually, um, I proposed a, a book three, which isn't from Cat's point of view, but involves Cat more closely. And I won't give anything away in case it ever comes to fruition, but they didn't want it right now. I think they want, they're waiting to see how this book does. And of course, the one of the issues is that these kids age out so quickly. So a lot of my readers from the children of Rookskill Castle are almost aging out of reading the Artifact Hunters, although the Artifact Hunters is pretty sophisticated, so they could still enjoy it, I'm sure. Um, yes, you're leading right yeah. into my other question because <laughs> there's a lot of really sophisticated vocabulary in this book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, like, I think a lot of adults would have to go and look up what Stygian means, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about how you address that and whether you do, whether you just assume that they're going to be able to read at this level and tackle that kind of uh, vocabulary. The term children has equally uh, sophisticated vocabulary. And I, I am... I would consider these both to be, by the way, upper middle grades. So they're labeled for 10 and up as opposed to 8 and up, where 8 to 10. But I have readers in in the 8 to 10 category as well. And I think I don't like to dumb things down for kids. Kids are really sophisticated and way smarter than some adults give them credit for. I also think that if, if there's enough contextual material, I was a teacher for a few years back in the day. And I think if you're given enough contextual material, they can usually sort it out. And if they can't, and they're really curious, there's a dictionary. Look it up. Yes. Look it up. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. That's really great to hear. Because that's my thought about YA. But I don't write middle grade in part, in part, interestingly, because I don't want to have to dumb down my language at all. And that was just an assumption I made in my ignorance. That's what you would have to do. Let's shift a little bit to this whole idea of historical fantasy and mixing the historical with the fantastic elements. Can you just talk about your approach with that a bit? Sure. I I love historical. My three YA novels are pure historical fiction. And so that element is really important to me. I love the research. I love playing with historical tropes. I love putting kids in a situation that isn't contemporary for this and that reason. That said, I have two books, one book coming out next year and the other book in proposal phase right now that are both set in contemporary times. I'll write whatever. But but the historical fantasy element, I the first book came about really because I was relating to that whole Narnia concept, which was set during World War II, set in England. And that was the sort of flavor I was reaching for. And it just happened. It just developed that way. So this second book, because it's a spinoff, because it's part of that same world, although two years later, it's 1942 now instead of 1940, it's just, an, that's where I placed it. Plus, I love the idea of making evil, there's so much evil about World War II that's true. So much awful evil that happened during World War II. But it's really hard for young readers or young people to relate to how that awfulness 
that kind of evil. And so I wanted to create a situation where they could be in that world, in that historical world, but have the evil be a fantasy evil that, again, separates the, it takes the fear to a different place where they can face it, see it, deal with it, have fun with it, if you will, vanquishing that kind of evil, where some things just seem too large in scope. So it's a fun thing to play with as a writer to to mix those two elements together and create something that makes the inaccessible a little more accessible, if you see what I'm saying. Yes, I do completely. And you're so right about the evil that the real evil there was would have been almost impossible for a young reader to deal with. On the other hand, there are wonderful books like Number the Stars. Have you read that, mm-hmm. Lois Lowry? Oh, oh yes. Fabulous uh-huh. book. Yeah. And that's very yeah. real and very much based in World War II. And then, of course, <laughs> I'm sure I, the Wonder Woman movie, which is, ba- which is World yeah. War I. <laughs> right. So that's <laughs> fantasy. That's historical fantasy. I appreciated that they did it that way, actually. I really liked that. But yes, so basically to, to do this kind of book, you really have to do the same amount of research and make sure you get all of that right, correct? Because you definitely yes. want your historical backdrop to ring true. And the hero, Isaac, is from Czechoslovakia, from Prague. And mm-hmm. can you, why did you choose that as opposed to making him someone from Germany or England or anywhere else? Well, uh, among other things, in, in uh, 1942, the, the Nazis had recently occupied Prague, which was then part of the Czech Republic, and now is the Czech Republic. And so I wanted the threat of the Nazi occupation to be very real for him. I also wanted him... <coughs> Sorry. I didn't want him to be... A German Jew. I wanted him to be one of the other nation states that were conquered by the Nazis, occupied by the Nazis. And, and I didn't want him to be in England. I wanted him to, to have this experience of being a refugee, of having to leave home, of having to leave everything he knew behind, and being thrust into this brand new environment, this brand new place, because I think a lot of kids can relate to or at least need to be able to relate to the refugee plight right now. And so I thought that was an important element. And I happened to, while I was writing the book, I happened to visit Prague. So I was able to gather a lot of that firsthand material and flavor and really get a sense of what the city is like and the rich history, Jewish history of that city. So it was, that was really a part that really informed a, a good part of the book as well. Yes. I love Prague. I went there when I was researching my dissertation and the clock. I loved how you worked that incredible mechanical clock in the square into, into the story. And I'm, I'm seeing little tiny echoes of it here and there. And mm-hmm. so this whole thing with machinery versus fantasy versus... Mm-hmm human beings and everything. It's very rich and and layered, I think. Some of the terminology, like the fantasy terminology, 
do you just assume they're going to figure out what that means? Or like the, or like, what is, I don't even know how you would pronounce it. Sluag, S-L-U-A-G-H? Sluag is one way to pronounce it. Yeah. What does it mean exactly? And Seely versus Unseely Fay and that kind of thing, which I was like, I, I could kind of, I could get it because you can figure it out. But I'm just curious mm-hmm. if there's, if these are, they're obviously not made up terms. You, they mm-hmm. come from somewhere. Can you mm-hmm. tell me what, where they come from? Yeah, that's Scot- it's Scottish mythology. And I, and, and again, I, I've been to Scotland and it's where my kinfolk came from, Ireland, Scotland. And I'm, I relate to that mythology in a deep way. And I thought it was fun to play with the, the Seelie and the Unseelie Fae. The Seelie Fae are, are what we think of as fairies, the usual sort of flighty, have fun all the time. They might, do, they might tweak human beings, but they actually are, they're not malevolent. They're just having a good time themselves. They love to dance. They love to sing, that kind of thing. The unseelie fae are the dark side of the fairy world. And the slog in particular are in those mythologies. They're the ones that will steal human souls. So they're quite nasty. And, and the, the thing about the Celtic mythologies in general is that they're so rich with uh, the, that duality, that light and dark, that good and evil and again, I just love playing with that in both of these books, both the Charm Children and this book. This notion that, but that not that evil is just a, a line and below which is evil or next to which is evil and the other side is not evil. There's some kind of blend there of, and, and that's why my antagonist in this story is conflicted and and is struggling with his own issues. He's the hero of his own story. That's what we say yeah. about our antagonists. <laughs> so he's, uh, he wants to be loved, and he isn't being loved and respected. And so he's on his own journey, but it's not to a good place. And, and I like playing with that again, too, because I think it's really important for kids to, to, to see the, that blend happens. That's where you have to start looking into the gray and say, really, how do I pull this apart? And how do I, if I want to be a good person, what's the, what's, what do I do to, to be a good person? Because I assume that all of us internally want to be good, basically. I think we do. Unless you're a sociopath or something like that. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Yeah. Also love, there's a time travel aspect to your book Mm -hmm. as well, which is a lot of fun. Now, how did you choose which time periods to go back to and how they, and how does that work into your story? That's a really great question because I played with a lot of possibilities. First of all, I wanted to have him travel in time back to a, a place that had a civilization in crisis because I think that in 1942, as maybe today, the civilization that they were living in, as we are living in, is a civilization in in crisis. And I wanted him to then go to these three places in time 
all, each of which had their own kind of crisis. And I wanted to step it up from the most ancient times coming closer to his own time. So I played with a lot of different possibilities. I also wanted to, I didn't want to just represent a single continent, if you will. I didn't want everything to be taking place in the Anglo-Saxon universe. I wanted, I, I would have potentially used an African civilization, but I don't feel qualified to go there. So I used a South American civilization that is extinct, entirely extinct, and vanished without a trace. And then, of course, in, in ancient Greece, an ancient Grecian civilization. I shouldn't say very much more. Or else, yeah, know, I, I know. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> but these are all, they can look forward to traveling to those places. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And seeing what happens when he gets there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's get back to you as a writer. Actually, you as a person, because you have a really interesting background. You did a lot of different <laughs> things before. Can geology, what, you want to talk? about that a little? Sure. I, yeah, I, I didn't, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't, I didn't go directly into that career. kind of wish I did because I have so many ideas and time will run out, but, <laughs> but I didn't go directly into that career out of college. I, I went into graduate school for marine geology and it's how I met my husband, which is nice. That's a good, that's fun. But the most fun part of that, I, I, we were researching using submersibles. So the most fun part of that was that I got to dive in a submersible to the seafloor, which I was telling someone the other day is a little bit like being an astronaut because you're in a place that very few people get to go two miles down the, on the bottom of the ocean in a tiny little three-person submarine. And, and one of the most fascinating things to me about that whole adventure yeah, I did research and I was a geologist, so I was studying the rocks and the rock chemistry. But the most fascinating thing to me was during those dives, you when you drop to the seafloor, you're positive, you're negatively buoyant. So you're loaded with weights and they just let you sink to the seafloor, not using any energy because the battery power is limited or was limited in those days. And so you couldn't use any energy or you would run out when you were on the seafloor. And, and once you're on the seafloor, you motor around quite a bit. So on the way down, and then again on the way back up, the pilot would say occasionally, okay, if you want to turn on the lights and see what's going on in the water column, you can, because it's really dark down there. It's really, <laughs> you imagine the darkest night, you can't even begin to imagine how dark it is. So you could turn on your light, and then all this mass of biology is in the water. It's teeming with life. There's all this stuff in the water all around you. And it's so odd shaped. There are pinwheels and fans and things with feathers sprouting out of their backs. And some of them are, are tiny and some of them are quite large. And then you turn off the lights and they all bioluminesce. So you're just in this, it's just like something out of, out of Avatar. It's just all this beautiful, brilliant bioluminescence. And so to me, that was the most uh, stunning thing that I experienced in, in the dives that I did. Okay, so I, the, see, the I see an easy jump from that to your fantastic creatures, oh. to the monsters and everything. I can just see how that might have ignited your imagination in a way for this stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. And then our son was born and he is dyslexic, which we were starting to learn when he was, you know, in kindergarten, nurse school kindergarten, he was really struggling with reading. And so I started making up stories for him. And at that point, I pulled away from geology anyway. And as I started making up stories, I thought, I wonder if I could write these. And that sort of led me down that mm -hmm. path towards yeah. writing for children. Yeah. yeah. What's your writing day like now? It varies, but I try to get some words in every day if I can. The last couple of weeks have been tough because it's pre-launch and you know how that is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's okay. What, do I, what can I do today to figure this out? Plus, now that we're both book coaches, yes. um, I have that other side of my life now. Yeah. And so I, I have to manage that side of my life too. But I, I did write a, what I'm calling my COVID book. It's not about COVID, but it's, but it's another middle grade fantasy that I wrote starting as soon as we got into quarantine and lock-in or whatever you want to call it in March. And it's almost finished and it's in proposal stage with my editor right now. So we'll see what she says about that. But it's a, yeah. a really fun, fun fantasy that that plays on some social justice issues, which is what we're all dealing with right now. So It's so interesting you should say that because I kept telling people I'm, I write historical fiction, straight, not fantasy, right. but historical. And all my friends and my writer friends are like diving into these deep, dark places because of the COVID. And I said, I'm just going to go and hang out in the 18th century. <laughs> there you go. That's where I want to be right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so yeah, it was a total a, escape. Actually, this book, I'm taking them to another planet. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> can I come? Please, can I yeah, come? <laughs> right. Anything to get away from this one. And I, my critique partner did the similar thing. We both started our books at the same time. She just sold hers. And, and hers is a rom-com. So there you go. We just have yeah, to, you know. Exactly, exactly. It's a great coping mechanism. And yeah, as you mentioned, we are both book coaches. And mm -hmm. uh, could you want to talk a little about what kind of coaching you do, who you like to coach, what's going on? And I don't know about you, but learning to be a book coach helped my own writing a whole lot. Tremendously, tremendously. I really, I, I mean, Jenny has constructed something truly terrific. And even if you don't want to coach, even if you didn't want to do, to become a book coach professionally or set up a business and all that stuff, which is the, the part I don't like so much, but I have to do, it's, that material is invaluable for deepening the work. I'm, I just have love that course and yeah, i've been just very lucky just to say that the yeah. people who don't know this we're talking about jenny nash and the course mm -hmm. is through her she's ceo of author accelerator which is where people learn how to be book coaches so yeah, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but i wanted to make sure people knew who we were talking about so go ahead yeah def definitely definitely and i stumbled on this last fall just after I finished the book that is coming out next summer and I was sort of in between this and that and I thought oh my lord I'd love to do that because I do it all the time anyway I have, people come to me all the time and ask me for advice or ask me to help them with this or that and in fact someone had just come to me and asked me to help her 
with a query letter. And, and I do it up for personal satisfaction. At that point, I was anyway. And I've been involved with SCBWI, which the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is the sort of uh, big, huge group for children's book authors. And I've been involved with them for almost my entire career. And, and so I've spoken to people and I have lots of contacts in that world, in that community. I also have a master's of fine arts in writing for children, which I got to really through the people I knew through SCBWI. And, and I saw I, it was a natural thing for me to want to become a book coach. It just felt natural. And then it's been a great experience because that person who asked me to help her with a query had very positive responses to the query, but then was rejected based on her manuscript. So she's one of my first clients. <laughs> and I'm helping her yeah, <laughs> with her young adult works. manuscript. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I know. Yeah. I, I feel exactly this. And I stumbled upon it exactly the same time you did. I think we were going through the course at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it really, I tell people all the time, it totally changed my life. <laughs> you know, I had lost a job that a day job in June and was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. And this came along and I went, that is what I want to do. <laughs> and it's, it's just been fabulous. So anybody out there who's a writer who wants to be a book coach, go check it out because you won't regret it. Yeah. I totally agree. And it's been perfect for me. So it's extra income, but it's more than that. It's very satisfying. And very since satisfying. We've, yeah. And we've had experiences as writers. So we know, we, I think, especially with the training, I feel very well prepared to help people and give them with what they need. And I've had two clients that have gone through an entire uh, program with me so far, and they've both been really happy with what they and they're both coming back for more and then a third client who will start later in the fall so it's it's also been good for me it's been a good timing in terms of the balance between my writing and my coaching that i i, I haven't even had to advertise yet so that's helpful <laughs> that's, that that's i can great. that's that i have just yeah. the right amount of work for what i need yeah yeah that's yeah. pretty awesome yeah is there Anything else you would want to say? I think you've answered most of my questions. The, the whole thing about middle grade fiction, I always feel as though there has to be some kind of, not didactic, that sounds really heavy hitting, but I, even in my YA stuff, I, in my YA historicals, I really want to illuminate something about the period that is beyond the story that I'm telling. And I get the sense, obviously, that's what you're doing, too. So I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I think it's really important, when, especially when you're dealing with historical fiction, whether it's for, whether it's like a nonfiction picture book, for example, which is really popular right now, by the way, nonfiction picture books for the youngest readers, historical picture books, or whether it's what I wrote here, historical fantasy, or what you write, historical young adult, I think it's really important that, A, you get that history right, and that you, B, make it really relevant to what's going on today, because, so that it doesn't feel like it's this arcane, whatever happened back in the day, and it doesn't matter anymore. Because it's that old saw, 
we're going to repeat it if we don't know it and <laughs> bang our heads against that wall again. Yeah. And, and so I think for young readers, especially in these times, which are so complicated and fraught and filled with emotion, hard navigation, I think his history not only takes them out of today, but also is like a mirror back to today that they can use, but feel just one step removed from the stresses and strains that they're going through in the moment, if you, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. And I, yeah. so I, yeah, so I love playing with history and I, and you know, you, when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, that's Jenny's point, right? <laughs> Find yeah. the point of your story. There you go. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny also talks a lot about how one of the most important elements that a writer in crafting a, a story needs to focus on is the point of the story not that you want to be, here's the point, here's the point. No, you, but especially for young readers, you want to find that, that little touchstone and weave it through the story so that when they reach the climax of the story, they're going, oh, I get it, I get it. <laughs> now I understand. And it clearly has a meaning that resonates at a deeper level because that's right. when great stories you know, happen, yes. when, oh, yeah. when they resonate at that deep level, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I've made you talk like crazy, but is there anything else you want to say that I have not covered? <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm having fun. Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, that's I'm why good. I started doing this podcast. I, it is so much fun. I love getting to talk to people like you and just ask questions and, you know, because after all, we all love talking about writing and reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great way to keep connected in, in times when we can't, too. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on here. And when your book is out on the 25th of August, according to the website, and I will put links and everything like that on my kidsjusthistorical.com website. And Janet, do you, have, do you want to give your URL for you how people can find you? Absolutely. So they can find everything about me, including my coaching, by the way, is all on the same website, which is www.janetsfox.com. So Janet's Fox, think of that, <laughs> .com. And actually the Charm Children and the Artifact Hunters both have a dedicated website called rookskillcastle.com in case kids want to play with that because there are some fun games on there for kiddos as well. Cool. So very cool. Yeah. All right. As I said, thank you again. And I hope you don't go too crazy. Don't get cabin fever, so to speak, (laughs) in your your cabin in the mountains, but I'm sure it's pretty lovely. So it is. It's very lovely. We're a little smoky right now and that's all coming out of California, I'm afraid. California. Yeah, yeah, of course. I forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we're still good knock on wood and, and it is getting on in August. So we're hoping for some rain soon. Yeah. Yes. I hope so too. Anyway, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne, so much.